Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. Well, welcome to this special edition of Word in Your Ear, which is uh, its a bit of an inside job, to be honest, because um, our guest tonight, who is who's promoting the sixth in his series of fantastically funny, wonderfully knowledgeable and thumpingly entertaining books about music, is, of course, the magnificent David Hepworth. Dave, <laughs> welcome. Lovely to see you. Here we are once again online. Are you missing? The uh, the hurly burly of the real live uh, promotional literary festival circuit. Well, normally a launch party would take place in in the kind of basement of a bookshop in the West End of London, that everybody would drinking warm white wine and passing around the twiglets, and bitching away in the corner by the detective fiction about how it's not as good as the last one or whatever, all that kind of That's thing. Right. That <laughs> people say. So you know, I don't miss that. Um, but yeah, you kind of miss. I miss going to bookshops, actually, is what I miss, you know, because I had set up absolutely ages ago, months ago, before all this happened, you know, a load of events at places like a lovely little bookshop called the Book Corner in Halifax, and I would have been doing David's in Letchworth, which is a fantastic little bookshop, and probably, the you know, the, the Wanstead Tap and all these places. There's yeah, no yeah. real circuit of these places, which is an absolute pleasure to go to. And a pleasure to sell a few books and and meet people, and so I'm missing that. But you know, as for as for schlepping up and down the country, yeah, you because know, frankly, you spend most of your time on the train rather than you know talking to people like I'm talking to you here. So like a like a seventies rock stars p- complaining about being in the van the whole time. Yeah, I suppose not so. on stage. Yeah, <laughs> hotel <laughs> plane literary festival. Hotel literary plane festival. literary festival. That's right. <laughs> yeah. But look, it's an absolutely, it's a brilliant book. And the basic story is about the three main occasions when the British music stormed America. And the title, Overpaid, Oversexed and Over There, of course, links directly to the Second World War. And you start the book with the point about the the uh, American invasion of Britain. Suddenly one million uh, US troops are on the, the British mainland. And uh, describe, as you do so brilliantly in that first chapter, 
how that points up the basic differences between the sensibilities and the cultures of the two countries. Well, it's a, a million a million people is a, is a bit of a problem with any kind of you know import like that, but particularly when it comes in the form of, of young men with uh, with gleaming teeth who are on average over an inch taller than the locals, you know, and have more spending cash to uh, to spend on the local women than they do, and have a slightly better uniform and all that kind of thing, and so. You know, that's where you get this this particular English-British jealousy of the Americans, you know, that, that dates back to the war, and that's where the expression comes from, overpaid, oversexed, and over here, which is what they said about the about the Americans. Yeah. Uh, and and that that you know continues through Hollywood as well. You know, they're all the kind of heroes of uh, of entertainment during the, you know, in the 40s and the 50s. The big ones were all all came from America, and then you get rock and roll as well. And rock and roll, you know, is a form of music. Well, it's like jazz in the sense that it's distinctly American, pretty much like flamenco is distinctly Spanish. You know, so so the yeah. idea of anybody from a, a different uh, culture or country attempting to do it seems rather presumptuous, really. So so mostly the the English didn't really bother, or, or even even when they did, they felt vaguely apologetic about it. You know, so I'm old enough to remember going to see, uh, you know, uh, Elvis Presley in in Blue Hawaii uh, in the same year as I saw Cliff Richard in The Young Ones. You know, they're both kind of very colourful, similar kind of films. Is that Blue Hawaii is obviously a lot more of a travelogue. But you know, you you know, on one side you had Cliff, who for all his glamour still looked as if he came from Chesant. And provincial with a double decker bus. And Elvis Presley, who, who looked as if he came from Venus. You know, yeah. it's it, it, simple as that. He looked like a, a a superhuman creature. He had this superhuman sheen to him, and there was about the Americans an ease. That the English, I remember, I'm old enough to kind of remember, even as a young boy, we felt terribly envious of. And we never thought we would ever compete in, you know, in, in those kind of stakes. Uh, but, of course, by the time I was 13, 14, we were starting to compete in them in a ways that nobody would have predicted a few years earlier. And so that's, well, that's the first turning point of the book, really. That's right. That's the major turning point, because the Beatles kind of uh, arrived on the Ed Sullivan Show in whatever it was, in February the, February the 7th, February the 9th, I think it was, 1964. Yep. And obviously there's uh, lots of elements of that package about the way they looked, the way they sounded, the way they acted, or whatever. But what do you think, uh, what were the main things that really appealed to the Americans, what really connected about the Beatles? The I think that they that didn't have before, they thought it was original. I think the first thing you've got you've got to bear in mind is that by the time the Beatles arrived, America was, to use common parlance, gagging for it. You know, they I mean? were they were, they were onside, absolutely, completely onside. They yeah. were out there at the airport. The media the airport, was I know. thousands Every, of girls bunked off school. Absolutely, they? everybody wanted them to be absolutely huge. Uh, you know, for reasons which I go into in the book, because I do think a lot of this to do with the. The assassination of JFK, which had occurred in late November in 1963, and so there'd been a period of massive national mourning, uh, you know, in which all American teenagers who were around at that time remember just sitting at home looking at each other over that Christmas period. And so when the Beatles arrived in February, there was this massive release of, you know, pent-up, pent-up feelings. 
And, you know, what the Beatles had to do mainly was just not screw it up. And they didn't screw it up at all, you know, because they had the fabulous records and they, they arrived with probably their best early records. I want to hold your hand and, and she loves you. Yeah. You know, which just had a fantastically infectious uh, air about them. They also just had a natural charm so that they were, they were no unmanaged, weren't they? They, 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 well, they, they appeared they, they, to be. It's been busking you know, because the press, uh, press conference. They came off the plane at JFK and you put them in a press conference room and they were on. That yeah. was a, that was almost as good a good value as them actually performing songs. Yeah. It was just them being themselves. But I think the thing that they had, which they didn't realize they had, because it was kind of commonplace in the UK. Because, you know, Paul talks about going there and thinking, I don't think the Americans will like us. Surely they've got loads of they've groups. They've got enough groups of their own. That's right. Well, yeah. well, it wasn't true. They didn't have loads of groups of their own. You know, they had loads of solo singers, most of whom were called Bobby and, uh, and wore, you know, um, Ivy League sweaters. And then they had lots of instrumental combos, the Ventures, the Safaris, Dick Dale, that kind of thing. But what they didn't have was that strange hybrid, which was the group, which was had grown out of skiffle, and it was partly to do with writing your own songs, and it was partly to do you performed everything yourself. You were a completely self-sufficient unit. And that was the thing that appealed to them. And I think it appealed to them not just musically. It also appealed to them on an emotional level. Because they were a gang. A group is a gang. You know, they're the a gang. Really there's no obvious leader either. It's not like no, you know, Buddy Holly and the Crickets where it was a group, but you clearly had a leader. You know. But I think the other thing they were, and this is, I found quite interesting in researching the period that, um, you know, that generation of fathers of the, ba the American baby boomers who'd fought in the war, they'd come back from the war, and they'd... Um, They'd moved out of their old extended families in the inner cities, very often in, in suburban, relative luxury, but somewhat isolated from each other. And so there was considerable distance in their families. And so if you read the memoirs of Bruce Springsteen, you know, you know, read about Tom Petty, read about Chrissy Hind, there's great distance within the families. And so what the Beatles provided, particularly in the film Hard Day's Night, because that's the middle of 1964, that's when everybody gets to see them on an enormous screen, just in absolute glorious black and white. What they provided was the, was the notion of a surrogate family yeah. that everybody could join. The brothers that you never had. Exactly, yeah, exactly. Absolutely. The idea yeah. that you could take your childhood relationships and you could take them out into the adult world yeah. and you, you could be really admired for doing it and, uh, and you'd celebrate your own, your own little peer group on a massive, massive scale. And I think that's what accounts for the fact that what happened with America and the Beatles is America just decided to fall in love. It's as simple as that. They decided we're going to fall in love with these guys, and they did. And that's a love affair that's arguably gone on to this day. You know, it's, yeah. it's more profound than just a successful musical act. Yeah, you know, yeah. They're absolutely taken to the nation's heart. So I think it was the groupness 
that that was that's what many talking about all those bands, the Birds and uh, Tom Petty, Springsteen, Donald Fagan, all sorts of people are incredibly captivated by that. Um, I, you probably haven't got time to do all of them, but I, there are so many interesting groups that after the second wave, as it were, after the Beatles, the others. You know, there's the, there's the story of the Day Club. These aren't that well known. These stories, there's Day Club, well, there's, there's, Herman's there's, Hermits, and there's the Animals. Maybe you should pick one of those and talk about briefly about their trajectory because they're, they're well, incredible. Well, Day, Day Club Five, talking the second wave, the so first indie group. They, they yeah. fly five are effectively going to the United States just as the Beatles are coming back, you know, after yeah. two weeks. And so there's a massive appetite in the States for anything English. And Dave Flight Five's Glad All Over is, is a hit record in the United States. And, you know, the Dave Flight Five for probably two years following that time were almost as big in, in, in the United States as the Beatles were. You know, it, were. It, it didn't last. They didn't. They didn't continue to have a legacy or anything like that. But there was there were many things about them that made them more um, appealing to the Americans than they were in Britain. I think one of the things is that they had a saxophone. Yeah. Very few, very few English groups had a saxophone. Whereas Dave Clark Five always always seemed to you know to be um, they, they they easily adapted to that American frat house sound. You know. In in Britain, they learned a lot of their trade playing US Air Force bases in East Anglia. And their their big boast was they'd go along there on a Saturday and they'd hear something on the jukebox and they'd go away and they could learn it and play it for the following the week. Uh, and they were very good. And they also they were the first although nobody talks about it now, they were the first indie group because the Beatles and all the other groups had just signed on to the record companies and in traditional fashion. They owned all the rights. In fact, he paid for the records to be made and then, then he did. hired them out he, to the lease them was, to the record company. He was, a, he was a film stuntman. He just knew yeah. his way about. They came from Tottenham. They were they were genuinely working class in a way that the Beatles really weren't, you know. Yeah. And uh, and he he they paid for making their first records. So they owned the masters. They were independently done. They were done. They were marketed as the Tottenham sound, you know, which never took at all. <laughs> never quite but, took off. But, uh, yeah, but oddly enough, they're all made in an independent studio in Holland Park, long before independent studios were, were the big thing. And they had this very, very, well, Bruce Springsteen still calls it, they had a nasty sound. And, you know, bits and pieces, glad all over. These are things that still nowadays sound fantastic as run-out music at sporting events. You know, they're built for they big scale. They do, yeah. They and, and in the Dave Clark Five, you can hear... They've got a military traces, beat to them. You can traces of what emerged years later in Kiss and all these all yeah, these absolutely. kind of acts, you know. Uh, so they, they were hugely important uh, for that, for the period of time. And then there were there were people like the Animals, who, who never managed to make the graduation from a singles act to an album act because they couldn't really write their own songs and they were not terribly well managed. But if you look at the animals, you look at the animals trail of singles, you know, uh, uh, baby, let me tell you home house of the rising sun. Don't let me be my son. It's my life. We got to get out of this place. Don't bring me down. They're all written by Americans. They're all American material. That's the irony, is because they're actually remaking American music. And like house of the rising sun. If I take you back to America, which is and extraordinary. doing it better. Doing, yeah, doing it better, doing it better. That's the really interesting yeah. thing about the animals. They, on, the, on those singles, they were utterly inspired. And you yeah. go and listen to those records now, and they've got a crackle about them that you yeah. don't get everywhere. And again, somebody like Bruce Springsteen will tell you that if you want to know where the promised land came from, 
go and listen to Don't Let Me Be Misunderstood Absolutely. by the Animals because it completely taken, you know, so they were, they were immensely influential, even and though they never... Another strange dimension to it, you've got this sort of a grumpy kind of Geordie presiding over the great psychedelic boom later on of well, you know, Eric Burden of, of the West Coast. But look, I was going to ask you about the, 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 the Stones, because you make a, a, such a good point about the Stones. You know, what was it that was so revolutionary about what they wore on stage? I was just I was fascinated by that. Well, yeah. They, I mean, they, they, the people nowadays say, oh, the Rolling Stones never wore a uniform. Well, they did. Very early days. If you look at them, Brian uh, Andrew Eldon put them in in houndstooth jackets and so forth, and uh, and they did do that stuff, but they, they abandoned it. And uh, people remarked, particularly when they went to the United States, that when they went on stage at the Academy of Music in in New York, they looked as if they just wandered in off the street, and that was something that nobody was used to seeing, because it was taken for granted that all musical entertainers whether they're classical, pop, jazz, novelty, whatever, wore some kind of uniform that reflected their business. Whereas the Rolling Stones never did that. And so they all looked as if they just adopted their own thing. And this, I think, made them hugely magnetic as TV performers. Because TV, for the Rolling Stones, I think even more than the Beatles, TV was their medium, you know. If you watch them on, you know, the Tammy Show or the and Jagger the, really played to the cameras. Didn't Jagger he? He plays didn't have an instrument tiny, to play, but he yeah he plays to the tiny window that the camera gives him. So every song, every hit they had, he'd work out a piece of business. And those of us who remember, you know, Satisfaction coming along in 1965, which was the thing that just took them to another level. The the thing that he used to use to accompany Charlie's drum break was the slapping motion with the hand wiped back and forth as if issuing a challenge to a duel, you know, which was <laughs> which was imitated in yeah. in playgrounds the length and breadth of, of of the world, really. But the interesting thing to me about satisfaction, and I write about this quite a bit in the book, is is Andrew Oldham has been at them to just write their own stuff, not just adapt you know, R&B favourites, Little Red Rooster, the last time, all those kind of things. You've got to write your own stuff. And so satisfaction just occurs to them in the middle of a tour. They, they record it twice, first time unsuccessfully, second time successfully. And the thing about satisfaction, 1965, unarguably the Annus Mirabilis of the 7-inch 45, absolutely no doubt about yeah. it. It's yeah, the year of, like a Rolling Stone, great Beatles records and great Motown records and whatever. But probably, arguably, the best record of the year is Satisfaction. And it sounds, I wouldn't, it's beyond sounding like an American record. It's a record about America. It's a record <laughs> that completely, completely reflects the experience of being in America. And from then on, that's what the Rolling Stones do. Get off my cloud. Same thing. Have you seen your mother, baby? Honky talk yeah. women. All these things. And They're become about... a, an American institution. Thank God of it. Yeah. They, it's they, because the Beatles actually wrote songs that are mostly just fictions and they're mostly stories about love affairs. They're mostly dramas, but they weren't particularly about the outside world. But satisfaction, they're, they're talking about advertising. Aren't they? They're talking about Absolutely. what's happening on American television. It's completely in touch with what's going can't on. Be a, can't be a man because he doesn't smoke the same cigarettes as same me. Cigarettes as me. All, all that kind of stuff. It's all, it's all about the. Uh, the kind of tacky impermanence of American life, which the British acts found 
simultaneously fascinating and and depressing. You know, yeah. and and that goes the all the way through the book is that the English, and it is mainly English here we're talking about. Yeah, their attitude to America, I think, still probably to this day, is they can't we we can't decide whether to feel superior to it or inferior to it. We just can't quite work out. <laughs> and that's what the Rolling Stones brilliantly reflect. That's going on absolutely all the way through their records. You know? And that, to me, is one of the fascinating uh, strands in this curious relationship between the two countries when it, when it relates to popular music. There's a bit where it, the, the, the pendulum swings back to the other way and suddenly it's, it's all about you know, Britain in Britain. And, you know, the Walker Brothers go there to kind of launch and Jimi Hendrix goes there to launch. Sonny and, and Cher go there to try and have a hit, as do the birds, you know. And it's suddenly all about Britain. And, and there's just a fantastic point you make that Britain invents the guitar hero. Yeah. Although it's not actually Britain, is it? I mean, it's more specific than Britain. It's really, it's, it's the suburbs of London, probably. Yeah. You, know, you, probably yeah. uh, you could probably go even closer and say it's the southwestern suburbs of London. Yeah. You know, because we're talking about Eric Clapton, Jimmy Page, Jeff Beck, you know, Peter Green, maybe you might extend it to Mick Taylor, you know. So Chaz Chandler brings Jimi Hendrix to London to launch him because if you launch an act, an American act in Britain at the time, they reappear in America with the fairy dust of swinging London all over them, which does them no end of good. Yeah, but also British endorsement, incredibly important at that point. And so, but also he brings them here because that's the that's the home of the guitar hero, and and he puts him on the at, uh, you know, various clubs in in the West End, knowing that on any Saturday night he can get all of those guys will turn up to watch the new gun in town and to give him to give him their blessing. So that is you know that's developed out of London, out of England, and then it goes to America and it blows up into a huge new form of music because what happens to all these groups and you know you talk about eric clapton and you know you talk about with cream and so forth they go to america and they suddenly find and this is 1966 67 they suddenly find they're playing a different kind of show in front of a different kind of audience. Yeah, because they were in quite small clubs, little kind of dance parlors, weren't they? Now these are bigger audiences, and the audiences are sitting. And they're sitting down, aren't they? And they're, they're, they're sitting down. Yeah. They're yeah. nodding rather seriously. That you know, they are immensely appreciative of the of the musicianship involved. Yeah. And uh, this, as you can imagine, goes absolute to the head of, of any uh, any young guitar hero from the UK who's used to having to deal with, you know, a bunch of blokes having a fight over there in the corner and then some some girls who really wish you'd play your hit, you know, shuffling from side to side to some kind of dance. Whereas here you're playing for, you know, guys with hair as long as you, you know, as yeah. long as yours, who've probably taken more drugs than you have and appear to be on the level that you're on yourself. So this has a massive effect on British music. And so what happens is these acts go to America and then they, in observing the audience and how the audience responds and what works in the market, they come back and refashion themselves for the American market. 
And this, the classic case of this is obviously Led Zeppelin, you know, because Jimmy Page had been out there as a member of the Yardbirds and, uh, you know, Peter Grant had been out there and, and, and yeah, Led Zeppelin were designed for the United States. And, uh, and, and also designed a kind of new kind of music that would travel long distances, wasn't it? You know, it had to be, it had to be about, uh, you know, reaching the back of some uh, drafty kind of arena rather than... Uh, it, it had to be broad. It was, it was halls, not... University halls, yeah. There were, there were loads of elements there, you know, that um, when uh, Jimmy Page first calls Terry Reid and asks him to be the singer of Led Zeppelin, and Terry Reid... Dear man, dear sweet man, says, no, I've got my own solo thing I'm doing. Yeah, which I'm sure he doesn't regret, even to this well, day. He doesn't, actually. He's, he's a very, very nice man, and he doesn't regret it at all. Um, but he, sa- he says, I'll tell you what, there's a bloke called Robert Plant I've seen in a band in, in the Midlands. Uh, and Paige says, is he good looking? <laughs> and, uh, and Terry Reed says, why do you want to know that? Yeah. And so in that question, you can see why Jimmy Page lives in a listed building in Holland. Absolutely. And, and Terry Reid doesn't. You know, they, they were, they, this was, this was uh, you know, people getting more serious about the, about the money-making opportunities that were going on in the United States. And then at the same time, you've got the who was started to arrive, and the who was somewhat late to arrive in America. Uh, for all kinds of complicated reasons. <laughs> and if you look at the Who's 1967, it's absolutely hilarious uh, um, picture of the range of stuff that people had to do in 1967. I think the first gig in that year, they play in at Morecambe Pavilion, I think, and they're playing alongside an organist and a group called the Doodlebugs. And then by the middle of the year, they're playing one-nighters in the States. By the middle of the year, they're playing the Monterey Festival, then they, right. go, then they go on tour supporting who? Herman's Hermits. Because That's Herman's right. Hermits, let's not we're, forget, we're, we're a big very deal. Big, very, very big, big deal, deal for a couple, couple of years. And by the end of the year, they're doing the kind of great heavy rock extravaganza with Vanilla Fudge at the, at the Long Beach Arena. You know, that's an extraordinary journey. That's an extraordinary amount of uh, uh, distance to travel in a short period of time. But Pete Townsend always says, the the who learnt to play properly in the United States because people weren't screaming at them, people weren't asking for the new hit single because they hadn't really had hit singles. That wasn't what they were about. But they had an opportunity. People were allowing them to develop and to allow them, them to develop. Yeah, and yeah. He, he talks about we learnt in in what he calls the electric ballroom, and by that he doesn't just mean one venue. It means a, a number of venues yeah. that you know that lend themselves to bands just exploring their possibilities a lot more than they would have had the chance in the UK just doing the standard one-nighters. And also playing places like the Fillmore, which bothered to have decent sound and bothered to have decent lighting, you know, and bothered to kind of please the paying customer and wanted the artist to enjoy it. And so he says, you know, he he pays a lot of uh, tribute to the great Bill Graham, the American promoter, that he was the man who gave us dignity as artists. And that wouldn't have happened back in the UK. No, no, it wouldn't have completely Because the light scene was not developed yeah, yeah. in that way in the UK, in the UK, whereas it was in the US. Yeah. So, you know, that's how, that's how you get the, the kind of 
the um, the transition into the massive world of stadium rock and heavy rock, yeah, and all those things. It comes out of those guitar heroes who went to the United States in 1966. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Seven. So late 60s, I mean, a lot of us, certainly people like you and me, had this intensely romantic uh, vision of, of, of American life based on, you know, its, uh, its movies and its geography and its folklore. Describe how the greatest example of uh, <laughs> cultural appropriation <laughs> was going on in Pinner. Well, in fact, <laughs> that's a great story. Isn't it? Well, by the end of the 60s, America's, I wouldn't say it's regained the initiative, but it's it's doing some interesting things. There are the Flying Burrito Brothers, obviously the band, Leon Russell, all these people are, are tapping in to the traditional values of American music. They're going yeah. back to the country, you know, they're, 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 they're reaching, reaching yeah. back to roots. And you would have thought <clears throat> this is a direction in which no English act could... <clears throat> I'm going to have to... <clears throat> Excuse me. That's all right. I carry on. A drink of water. Excuse me. Yeah. It proves it's live. <laughs> I'm sorry about that. You would have thought it was impossible for any English act to follow in that way. But, you know, the former Reg Dwight of Pinner, <laughs> newly transformed into Elton John, and his songwriting buddy... Uh, Bernie Torpin from Spalding in Lincolnshire, yeah, living with his mother in Pinner, and spending all their time in the import bins of Harlequin and One Stop and all these places in the in Soho, flicking through Leon Russell and Quicksilver Messenger Service on whatever is the new thing. They have a head so full of all this stuff that Bernie writes all these lyrics about, you know, the ballad of a well-known gun. And they're all about returning from the Civil War and burn down the mission and all that kind of stuff. 
And uh, and the cover of the record is, it looks fabulously American. I think I've, I've probably got it. I've probably I got it there, yeah. Uh, but in I fact, it's it. shot, it shot in a railway station it, somewhere in southern it, England. It's it? shot in, uh, yeah, this is Tumbleweed Connection, which is all about America. Yeah. It's written in Pinner. It's recorded in Water Street. And the cover was shot on the Bluebell Railway in Sussex. That's it right. is. And neither of the two people responsible for writing it had ever been to America. At that stage, they hadn't, hadn't been to America. No, no. But it was, it, was a, it was a big breakthrough record for them when they, you yeah. know, they went later that year and he had that remarkable entry at the Troubadour, which was a little bit like the Beatles' entry those, all those years earlier, in that he was... He it was happened presented. literally overnight, didn't it? Yeah. Well, he was, he was presented as Dick James, the publisher has published The Beatles, and now he's publishing Elton John. So in that sense, he's kind of the heir to The Beatles. The so he, gets, yeah. he, he starts at, at, you know, The Troubadour. He's introduced by Neil Diamond. You know what I mean? That gives you an idea of how big, how high a level he entered at, you know. Yeah. One of the years of struggle. Elton arrived, you know, fabulous reviews, and his career just took off from then on. There's a there's a, a brilliant chapter also about David Bowie. He went on a kind of reconnaissance mission to the States in 1971, uh, paid for, I think, taken over by Mercury Records, didn't he? Because he had the man who sold the world and, and to promote. Now, why did that have such a profound effect on him? You know, it completely changed his life. <laughs> I think so. You know, he went off when his wife was you know, heavily pregnant with the, the first child and so forth. Uh, he went he, he had two to three weeks. I think the key to that trip he goes in 1971, is he went on his own. <laughs> now, I don't know how you first went to America, but I went on my own. And if you go on your own... I did you, too. Yeah. You internalise this fantastic experience you have. It's like having a dream, but it's real life. You know, yeah. Everything you look at, every sign you look at, every bit of speech you overhear, every menu item you read is... in profoundly kind of exciting and stimulating and uh, that was what happened with David Bowie and so he went from one place to another in America and reinvented himself in between and so the early bits he's in New York he's been he's been shown around by Paul Nelson and people like that and then he, he goes to Texas he goes to the middle of the country and then he goes to California and he re-emerges in California, a totally different person. Yeah, wearing, yeah. wearing these wacky hats. And people in Britain are saying, you know, they think of him as being kind of shy and uh, self-contained, don't they? And apparently he has this garrulous, hilarious, you know, highly entertaining, flamboyant character. They, they couldn't quite work out it was the same guy. And, and during that trip, he hears, you know, the Stooges and the Velvet yeah. Underground and all that sort of stuff. And during that trip, he has the idea he's going to have, a, you know, uh, he's going to write some songs about somebody called Ziggy Stardust. And so, you know, I think that fundamentally changes David Bowie. That experience of like three weeks on his own absolutely turns his head around in a way that it did for quite a lot of people. Yeah. And, and oddly enough, David Bowie didn't really have a big hit in America until... 76, 77, and it wasn't until he um, he made fame, you know, he made Young Americans, he made a, um, a record in America for America, as as many people by then were learning to do, not least Rod Stewart. Uh, and, you know, it wasn't until then 
that he really had a breakthrough in America. But his records like Diamond Dogs and Aladdin and Sane, Ziggy Stardust, they're American all over. Them, yeah. you know? They're just America's totally gone to his head in the best possible way. He's come back talking about sidewalks and other elevators, you know, and yeah. writing songs in a, in a totally different idiom. And, uh, you know, I think that's where that's where it um, that's where it changed for David Bowie. Well, there's a, a really interesting section leaping forward a little bit to uh, about punk rock and about punk rock's catastrophic failure to connect with America. And you talk about this Pistols tour, which is really interesting because they seem to be deliberately kind of self-sabotaging. They're playing, you know, they're playing parts of America that, 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 that would kind of loathe them the most, you know. But why was it that punk rock didn't, didn't connect with America? Was well, it because it was just not oddly, enthusiastic about the place. You see, I think, oddly enough, it did connect, but years later, you know, because you can say that Kurt Cobain and Nirvana was punk rock many years after the, after the event, you know. True, but based it, on 1981 punk rock, wasn't it? In, uh, uh, late and 70s, um, yeah. I think the problem was that it's very difficult to go to America unless you can happily say, we're pleased to be here. You know, the Beatles, we're pleased to be here. The Rolling Stones, we're pleased to be here because it's where all our heroes come from, all that kind of stuff. It's standard politeness, <laughs> when you go to a foreign country, to say you're pleased to be there. Very difficult for punk rock, particularly the Sex Pistols, to ever say they were pleased to be anywhere other than... No, it was not being on brand, was it? It wasn't being on brand. No, not on message. And so during that that tour, which, as you say, was kind of deliberately booked in the southern states of America, because I think Malcolm McLaren thought he he might be able to generate some friction between the Sex Pistols and, and redneck audiences that might give them the spark that they had in Britain didn't didn't really work. And Johnny Rotman's on stage going to the audience, you know, I'm not here to amuse you, you're here to amuse me. You can't say that to the that, Americans. That doesn't you, go down it just, well. it just doesn't work. I don't like that. For some reason, they don't like that. And uh, post-punk, you know... This is the days of the, the NME and Sands and Melody Maker, where there's massive amounts of new acts coming out of Britain absolutely all the time. We're constantly discovering the new, new thing. And, and they all go to America. And, uh, and 99% of them fail because they can never work out how to, how to manage that relationship. You, you call it ridiculous that the boomtown rats go. I know they're not British, but they, they come from the same culture. And, you know, you can't go on stage in the States and introduce Rat Trap by saying, this is a better song than Bruce Springsteen could ever write. You know, <laughs> nobody, nobody's going to take that as being hilariously tug-in-cheek. Did you run that past the management first? I don't think you did. It just, no. It's not going to work at all. No. And so um, hundreds of, of British actors who went to America in the years afterwards couldn't work out how to do that. And, again, it comes back to this business. Can't decide whether to look down on them or look up because actually the act, the act from I think yeah we can call it the British Isles, that really uh, inherited the mantle was you two. You two completely. You, who come from a very similar culture, but obviously they're not British, and and they and the Americans absolutely adopt them because they're Irish, and all Americans think they're Irish, and uh, and and Bono. And you two brilliantly know how to be diplomatic. Yeah. They know how to kind of 
tickle America where America... And they know exactly how to play to into what America wants. Exactly, really rather than just it. superimposing something on hoping they like it. Absolutely. But there's the, yeah. there's the, the fascinating bit about the, 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 the kind of third wave, the third uh, kind of American uh, invasion, which at one point, I think it's in 1983, sees 18... Uh, British acts in the top 40. This is Soft Cell, Culture Club, the Police, Human League, you know, Eurythmics, groups like that. Now, one, basically one thing was responsible for that, wasn't it? Yeah, it's basically MTV. MTV, yeah. M- MTV starts, and when it started, very few in America thought it was going to work. They just thought, why would anybody want you know, vid- videos around the clock? And, uh, you know, because it went on to be an absolute phenomenon. In its very early days, they had MTV, they had the airwaves, but they had very little little product to use. Because no American groups, because we all had stuff ready for Top of the Pops, didn't we? We had stuff, every British band, because it's a singles market in Britain, certainly was at that time, every British band shot a video for every single, pretty much, because they'd go on Saturday morning telly or they'd they go on, they wanted to be on top of the pops, all those kind of outlets. So there were a million and one uh, clips lying around in British record companies of kind of, um, you know, the, the problem was at the time, American American acts all looked like truck drivers and, and English acts happily looked like hairdressers. And so, you know, post MTV, hairdressers is what you want. Yeah, bring them in, you know. Yeah. I think in the, in the case of the Flock of Seagulls, they literally were all hairdressers. I think some of them were hairdressers. That's right. I think, and, and all these Mike acts, Score did a bit of home experimenting, I think, probably. Yeah. All these <laughs> acts were marked out by the fact that they you know, that, that they had these uh, these really eccentric hairdos and, yeah. and looks and, you know, and they wore makeup and all these kind of things. So that's what really brought them to attention, the attention of the American public. And so you get this second wave which at the time was was embraced, you know, and I suppose spearheaded by Culture Club and uh, Annie Lennox, Eurythmics, Duran Duran, Soft Cell, all those kind of things coming afterwards. And then and a lot you... of people, a lot of people found it found it surprising that groups like Culture Club could be so widely accepted in America. Yes, Did that yeah. surprise you? I mean, you know, you think of the American taste generally. Well, they, they were all. I think there were girls. There were loads of girls who really liked, really liked Culture Club. And I think what's yeah. happening, they, they they were kind of flexing their muscles at the time. There was it was never difficult in America to, to scare up a fundamentalist preacher who can tell you that Boy George is is leading the youth of America into hell. Yeah. You know, that's always gone on. Quadruples the record sales overnight. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it wasn't it wasn't really a problem, and. Um, but but none of those groups really, really made the transition in, into absolute major permanent fixtures yeah. of the American scene, you know. Because, and, uh, you know, if you go right back to the beginning, that's the interesting thing to me about the whole area, is that um, is that the whole British rock music, pop music experiment is is predicated on the basis that if it does really well, you'll make it in America. Therefore, it's worth really big bets to make it in America. Because if you make it in America, the arithmetic totally changes. You know, if you have a middling hit, it sells enough to buy you a huge house, you know. And so everything became 
about America, about continuing to make it in America. And, and as you said earlier, you know, the 1983 point, I think it's 18 out of the top 40. Yeah, 18 out of top 40. Out the top 40 are of British um, derivation, whether that's the police who were obviously really big at the time, uh, things like Eddie Grant, there's the pretenders, there's the kinks, there's all, all kinds of people. Uh, because what's also starting to happen there is the beginnings of dance culture. And what loads of those groups provided was really good pop tunes you could dance to. Yeah. It's what made them popular in Britain equally made them popular in the United States. And that States. sort of led to the next wave of America uh, retaking the, the lead, because a lot of that is based around Madonna, I think. You know, Madonna's sudden success as a kind of pop dance kind of item. And a big, suddenly America was kind of uh, on the front foot again, and, and America produced loads of, A, girl pop stars, and B, um, uh, solo acts, you know, Bruce Springsteen, Prince. It's a, uh, that's, the, Jackson, that's, you know. the, that's the obvious contrast, you know. If you look yeah. at the, the biggest British acts are Beatles, Stones, Led Zeppelin, the, yeah. those kind of things. They're groups. The biggest American acts, Elvis Presley, Bruce Springsteen, Madonna, Michael Jackson, they tend to be solos. Yeah. It's it's an individualist culture. So that's that's what people that's what people, people respond to. And of course, by the mid-80s, they were bringing it all here. And so, you know, I interviewed Bruce Springsteen at the beginning of that tour, Born in the USA tour in the States. And it was certainly felt in Britain at the time that you would never, you could never make somebody like Bruce Springsteen a really big star in in the UK because he was too specifically American. Well, that was proven wrong within about six months. Yeah. And you had hundreds of thousands of people going to Wembley wearing massive cowboy hats and, and Stars and Stripes bandanas and, you know, doing their best to look and act as archetypally American as they possibly could in a way that hadn't really happened before. And no. so, you know, the, the big acts of, of, the, of the 80s are Madonna, Prince, Michael Jackson and Bruce Springsteen. And they're all individuals. And they all, if you scratch, they sing about America. They're about America, you know. They've probably written songs about America, you know. Somewhere they, you say also that the, the Bruce Springsteen, the idea that he, he he kind of pulled himself out of his group and called the group Bruce Springsteen and the East Street Band, and 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 wanted to refer to as the boss is something it could only have happened in American culture. It wouldn't have happened in British culture because nobody would have allowed that to happen. No, yeah, the idea of bosses. We we we, we, we accept that there are bosses, but we don't like talking. We don't about like to, we don't like to applaud them. <laughs> and uh, you know, so you know, Britain's. Is, I think it's very interesting that you know, we're we're obviously very. Uh, are we any more hierarchical than anybody? Well, we're, so, we're certainly very socially conscious. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah. But but also we have a, a rich tradition of of kind of cheek and insubordination, which I think animates the best British music, all all through the years. You know that that uh, the British pop stars aren't afraid of saying things. It might get them into trouble from time to time, but they'll say them. American acts they tend to play safe. They're aware of the big picture all yeah. the time. You know, yeah. So that couldn't go on forever. So you finished the book, I think, in February, and you know a lot's happened since then. So do you feel that things have changed 
in terms of the Anglo-American relationship. I well, mean, it, hasn't, it hasn't changed it, anything in terms of the book because the you know the book no not remotely 1964 to 1984. Yeah, yeah. Um, but um, no, it's interesting that you know I handed the book in it in February, and um, and then in early March this all happened. And I, I was just thinking about this today that uh, you know the early part of the book. 1961, 62, whatever. America is very, very far away geographically and culturally from Britain. We, none of us imagine ever, the average Briton never imagined going there, ever. It was just a dream. And, uh, and, and if you take the situation now, I don't pretend to know how long this current unpleasantness will go on, but it, it's not going to solve itself quickly. <laughs> It's not going to go back exactly to where it was. And so, you know, we will emerge from it with the distance between Britain and America, culturally and geographically, probably like it was in 1962. It'll be a long way away for, for most people. And, and, you know, the acts who go there will be the dead certs who go there they won't necessarily be the thousands who travelled with hope in their hearts and a commotion in their trousers, <laughs> desperately, just believing if I could only get to play at the Fillmore East or if I could only get interviewed by Rolling Stone, I would join the company of the elect. Because that, that was the great dream that drove yeah. British, British bands from the 60s through the 90s, um, I don't think that's coming back in a hurry. No, it's not. And and if you want to, to revisit them, which you should, uh, Dave's book is absolutely brilliant and a fantastic uh, escape from, from current circs. And, <laughs> <laughs> and I could not recommend it more highly. Fantastic. Thank you very much for, uh, for, uh, for, for, for watching, for attending. And uh, thank you, Dave, enormously. And the book is out on, oh, well, I think, the Thursday the 17th and available from all uh, standard um, physical and digital vendors. And uh, people should get in there and, uh, and acquire a copy as soon as possible. And, your, and your name is? <laughs> <laughs> and on that note... On that note, see you soon. This podcast was brought to you by The Word. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.